guys can go ahead and have a seat. It's great to see everyone here today on Palm Sunday. It's, uh, it's looking like it's going to be a white Easter, just like the ones we used to know. <laughs> Maybe I have the wrong uh, holiday there, but uh, on that note, Bob has a quick announcement for us about the Easter egg hunt. Yes, thank you everyone that has helped in the last week. We have 6,175 filled eggs in the corner office. We've got, I think, over 2,000 plastic eggs ready for next year <laughs> and uh, extra candy too. So we, and also yesterday we passed out invitations to over 400 of our closest friends too and our neighbors. So um, continue to pray this week and next week, if you're able to help, uh, between 8.30 and 9, if you show up, we'll put you to work, and um, we will welcome our neighbors and our friends, um, pray for the, the gospel as it goes out, too, and, and just pray for good weather, too, because God can bless it in any weather, but it just seems a little more fun when it's sunny and warm. team and I hope and pray that we will be able to grow in our practice of what we just sang coming boldly before his throne I invite you to pray with me if you would as we continue to worship through the study of his word father we come to you as needy people asking that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our souls to the truth you have in your word that we might see it, understand it, and take it and let it impact the way we live our lives. Father, I know that there are truths here that are not new, but at least for me, they are not always or fully applied in my life, and need, I need to be reminded of them and encouraged and grow in them. And so I pray for all of us uh, to be encouraged by your word, challenged, convicted, and changed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want you to look at a picture of a deck. This is an outside deck, okay? Uh, that deck was stained two years ago. Desperately needing some resurfacing, okay? And the reality is that this deck, like many other decks, encounters... It's on a southern exposure, so the sun beats down on it. It rains, it snows, it sleets, it freezes. And then there's the constant friction of people walking across it. And then when there's snow on it, it's being shoveled off. And so there are all these forces at work to separate the very thing that's intended to protect the boards from the boards itself, themselves, which is the stain. Well, a similar thing happens in the lives of believers. There are a lot of forces at work to separate us, 
our assurance of our faith and our confidence in our faith and our relationship with God to separate us from God and our understanding of His love for us. So there are a lot of things that are hostile to the preservation and the practice of our faith. For example, there are a lot of different world religions out there, a lot of different ideas, kind of a, well, syncretism, okay, it's a fancy word, but it just means a little hodgepodge of everything. I don't know if any of you know, remember who Phil Jackson was. He used to be the coach of the Chicago Bulls and then the L.A. Lakers, and he was a, a syncretist. He'd just kind of throw every religious system in a, in a pot, and he'd stir it around, and then he'd just pick out what he liked about each one. There are a lot of different world religions in the sense that you, world forces or spiritual realities, spiritual teachings, some teach that there is no hell. Some teach that God is just love. Some teach that all of us are going to heaven. We're just on different paths to get there. Those forces mitigate or they are hostile to Christianity. Now, it's not just those things, the errant theologies, but there's also world philosophies, humanism. Yeah, man's basically good. You know, we're just kind of pretty much good. But, you know, sometimes people get a little off. That's the teaching of humanism. Then there's individualism. I'm doing my own thing. Thank you. Don't bother me with your deal. I'm doing my own thing. Materialism. We just need more, bigger, better. I mean, that's what commercials are made for, right? To create a need. We need this. We need that. My daughter comes up. I need these. I'm thinking, what? You don't need anything. You know, you like like to have some stuff, but you don't need anything. You got food. Clothing, shelter, you're good. All right. And then there is also life circumstances. There are also life circumstances. And we could go around, and I know from the hearts of many of you, some of you are dealing with the loss of a loved one. Some of you have struggled and struggle with the physical ailments and struggles with physical disabilities. And some of you struggle with relational struggles and issues and hardships. And there's heartaches in your heart because of the difficulty. Some of you have children that are walking away from God or not fully embracing their Christian faith. And some of us pray for our kids that they would fully embrace it and we're concerned about where they're going and how they're going to turn out. Others are dealing with financial struggles and financial challenges. I'm trying to, you know, there's not enough money left at the end of the month. There's too much month and there's not enough money. So those are issues. And all of this stuff is there to rock our world. Uh, Satan wants to use the world, the flesh, and the devil, and all these things to kind of say, you know, hey, just give it up. This Christian life thing is really not worth your time, your effort, and your energy. Wouldn't it be nice for those people who own homes who have a deck if there was some silver bullet covering you could put on your deck that would never have to be replaced and you could never have to refinish your surface of your deck and it just lasts forever? Yeah, but it's not there. You know, it's not coming anytime soon. It'd really be nice as Christians, comforting, to be assured that our faith is rock solid and that God is powerfully working in the present circumstance in which I find myself. He is at work to accomplish His purpose for His glory. I tell you, folks, those promises are the deck covering, no, not so much. But the promise that God has 
you securely, if you're trusting in Christ the Savior, right where he wants you, and that he is working in spite of all of the chaos and all of the contrariness of the world, God is at work. And I find these promises in the passage that we're looking at this morning in 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 17. Marvelously, these promises exist, promises exist and we're given solid reasons to rest assured to be confident in a world that's chaotic and a world that's contrary to us. And I'm going to read the text, and we're going to unpack two bold assurances that God gives every person who is, names the name of Jesus, who's truly a child of his, two assurances that we are living victoriously in spite of what may be coming at us. 1 John chapter 5, beginning with verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say to, that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Well, the first assurance, and this is really not rocket science, when you look at the text, the first assurance in verse 13, these things I have written to you believe in the name of the Son of God in order, in order that, when you see that in the text, in order that, it means a purpose. This is the purpose and the purpose is to give you assurance that you have eternal life. In order that you might know that you have eternal life. It's really a joy for me to sit down with people and talk to them and say, you know, has anybody ever taken a Bible and shown you how you can know for sure that you have eternal life? I don't know anybody that I've actually asked that question who said, well, yeah. Almost everybody says, well, no. And I said, well, would you mind if I did? And most everybody says, sure, uh, that's fine. Now, this doesn't happen all every day or whatever, but when I have that opportunity. And here is the text. There are three important questions that, that verse 13 answers. First of all, what exactly is written? Well, the text starts out, these things. These things have been written. So immediately we ask, what are these things? It's very similar. These things refers to everything that John has written up to this point. Just like in chapter, John chapter 20, verse 31, he concludes the end of John, John, he includes these things, which he's referring to the entire epistle, or the entire gospel. Now he's in, referring to the entire epistle. And I just want to kind of do a, a flyover of the main categories of these things. There are three of them, three tests. Three broad tests, we've looked at several tests to assure us whether we know we are, have eternal life. Remember the series title, Possess What You Profess. Well, how do we know if we possess what we profess? We profess faith in Christ. How do we know if we possess it? There are several tests given in this book. The first broad category of test is an obedience test. If you have your Bibles open, you can turn to 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. And he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, 
we lie and do not practice the truth. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, if anyone says he's come to know me and does not keep my commandments, he's a liar. So this obedience test. Nobody lives in willful, known, blatant disobedience to God, ongoing disobedience. Anyone who does that is not a child of God. That's what John says. I'm not saying that. That's what John says. So if we're living in some pattern of unrepentant sin and perpetual sin, then there's every reason to question. Now, I'm not the one walking around. You should not be the one walking around saying to people, oh, you're not, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. You're not a Christian because da, 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 I'm the judge. No. But if I'm living in this, then I should, if I'm hearing this, if I'm reading this, I should be going, well, whoa, I better do a gut check here and see if I'm really walking in the light. There was a magazine, Time Magazine cover article in 20, April 25 of 2011. This was the title of the article, or the magazine cover. What if there's no hell? The writer of the article argued that he, he went on, he condoned every major social sin in our culture. He condoned it as the practice of believers who needed to be alleviated of the guilt that they felt for engaging in this behavior. That was his argument. So he was saying, basically, believers can practice anything they want. They just need to be alleviated of the guilt that they have for doing that, which is nonsense from the Bible. John would argue, and I would argue from John, that any professing believer who engages without remorse, regret, or repentance in ongoing patterns of unrepentant sin is not a believer. It's not a child of God. They're, they don't have the, the mark of a true child of God. That's not what it is. Believers do sin. That's 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. We, we, we do sin. There's no doubt about that. Bible says, no one who was born of God practices sin, 1 John 3, 9. Okay, we don't practice sin. So that's the first one. The second one is the love test. 1 John chapter 4, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, because God is love. We made a big point of that throughout several passages here, but the point is, if we love one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we are truly a child of God. 1 John 2, 9, if we say that we are in the light and hate our brothers, we are in darkness. So, well, I'm a child of God, I'm a child of God, but I, I, I'm really treating my brothers and sisters like dirt. No, that's a disconnect. We need to do a gut check. A true child of God will sacrifice to the point of death. You have your Bibles, look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Maybe physically, but certainly in sacrificial love towards one another. I mean, that's the, the minimum standard is that we sacrifice in our love and giving and caring and sharing for each other. The maximum would be that we would actually give our life for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I, 
I had to stop and think, well, is that how I live? Is that how we all live in relationship to one another? Am I growing in my sacrifice? And let's put it a little bit personal. If you're married, do I sacrifice for my spouse? You know, this kind of sacrifice. Am I willing to die? I, I don't like dying, especially to myself. You know, I don't really like it when I have to put my wife's needs above my own. Because I think, like most of us, we're selfish. It's like, well, yeah, but I'm tired. Well, yeah, but I'm hungry. Yeah, but I need some help. God says, so. Do what you, you're called to do. I died for you. What am I going to give more than Jesus gave for me? And so it kind of hits me between, you know, so am I willing, when, when I'm watching Michigan play Florida State, and my wife says, hey, would you mind going and getting me a glass of water? Would you mind going down and getting some laundry out of the, the, the clothes dryer or the washer and put it in the clothes dryer, which she didn't do because we don't have any of that right now. So, but if she would do that, I'm like, whoa, I don't know, maybe. Uh, no, before I would do my reading, before I would do my resting, before I would do my riding on my bicycle, would I be willing to do that for her before? Okay, and somebody said, well, that doesn't apply to me because I'm not married or whatever. Well, what about your children? Will I sacrifice for my children? Now, I'm not talking about, you know, some of us get way overboard on sacrificing for our children. You know, it's like we, we think we're sacrificing for our children, but we're really just enabling them. Uh, to do too much. So, you know, sacrificing for our children is you're, you're, you're going to work every day. You know, you're educating them. You're encouraging them. You're spending time with them. You're sacrificing for your kids, sacrificing for your, your siblings, children, young people. You're willing to share your toys? Are you willing to share your space? Are you willing to be an encouragement rather than a downer to your younger siblings or your older siblings. The younger ones, you're going to be an annoyance to your older siblings. The older siblings, you're going to be an encouragement to your younger siblings. You just, I don't have to love them. They, I live in the same house with them. What? God calls us to love each other. So other students, members of this church, are we willing to sacrifice? Well, I was just blessed last night. Thank you, Grubbs. Uh, Mark and Holly for hosting us here at the church, us not-quite-shins, uh, which is the older group in our church, okay, so we're, we're the little younger group than that. We, we sat around, we played games and laughed and talked and shared, and it was because somebody loved us enough to host it. This is all it takes. But they said, well, I don't want to do that. It takes time. They were here like at 6, 5.45, 6 o'clock. They didn't get home till like 10 o'clock last night or 10.30. But they loved us, sacrificed, died to themselves. I'm sure there's a lot of other things they could have done. And they had all the preparation time to get ready for it. You see, it's, it's, it's a note. It's sent. It's a card. It's, it's prayer offered. It's bringing cookies over to somebody that, you know, you just thought about bringing them some cookies. It wasn't because it's helping Mark and Mary when Mary goes into for surgery, you know, to provide some meals and help, help that way. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. 
Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not keep a record of wrong. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, I don't know about you, but John has been saying this, and I've been saying that John has been saying this for a long time. But I still need to hear it. As I find every stinking week where I'm falling short. And so we need to be called back to what God has called us to and empowers us to do. Am I focused so much on the disappointment of other people or on what God wants me to demonstrate towards other people? More focused on complaining, but somebody's not caring for me. Somebody's not concerned about me. Somebody is not coming to my aid or my rescue. Or am I more focused on how I can give and share and love and show what Christ has done for me? I mean, it's so easy. You know, we sit and soak and we go, well, yeah, poor is me, you know. Um, nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll go eat worms. You know, it's like, now, I'm not saying you don't have some sad, hard times, but it's like God says, hey, let's get up and love, love each other. I'm going to pick on him. I didn't ask if I could pick on him. But, but you know, every week, Mike Johnson takes uh, the sermon and he, he edits what needs to get edited out. Thank the Lord for that. And then he uh, uploads it to the web page and he prints out all the kind of stuff, all the flyers, all the brochures. He does all this uh, advertising stuff for us and, and gets stuff out on the web and the Facebook page and, and Twitter and all this stuff. And he sets out the signs on Hickman and 86th Street. And most of you people don't even know that. Some of you do. Most of you don't know that. But he doesn't do it for praise and glory and honor and he does it because he loves Jesus and he's just serving Creekside Church and the kingdom of God that's what God calls us to do then there's the Christ test in 1 John chapter 2 verse 22 we read this who is a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ 1 John 4 verse 15 Whoever confesses, oh, and, and, and we have uh, verse 15, yeah. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we've made a substantial argument throughout the epistle that if you don't get it right on Jesus, you haven't got it right. Who is Jesus? Confession of the Son means possession of the Father. And what does it mean to confess Jesus is to admit and to acknowledge that he's fully God and fully man. Not partial, not that he was, God came on him until he went to the cross or that he never was a, a man at all, which were the two arguments made by the Gnostics. No, he's fully God and fully man. Bible doesn't teach that everybody goes to heaven. They teach that you only go to heaven, you only have forgiveness, you only have a relationship with God through one person, Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life. The Bible doesn't teach universalism. But the Bible, people say, well, you know, Jesus was a wise teacher. Yeah, he was. Well, Jesus was a prophet. 
Yeah, he was. That's not all he was. He wasn't only a wise teacher. He wasn't only a prophet. He was the only Son of God, the only Savior of the world. Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Only Jesus. That's the Bible. That's not me or any, that's the Bible. So you can argue with God on that one, but I think that's a futile attempt. I'd think just accept that Jesus is the only way. He's not one among many options. So that's what these things are. Now, who was he writing to is the next question that's answered in verse 13, and that is to believers. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. To believe is present tense. The believing ones, they are now trusting in Jesus. You know, some people say, well, I don't know when I came to Christ. I don't have a testimony because I can't point to a day in which I was trusting. I'd say, are, are you trusting Jesus now? And his death alone and that is the payment for your sins. Are you trusting in Jesus now? Well, yeah. Okay, then don't worry about it. You don't have to go back to some time in the past or whatever. Are we believing in Jesus? My wife, Marla, and I have been to Haiti twice. She's been there three times. She went another time with our daughter Cheryl last August, but the two times we've been there together, we've, we've gone down with a friend of ours who, who flies in uh, his own plane and lands in, in Haiti, and so we've gone twice. We have had to believe in his ability as a pilot because to get to Haiti from here, you've got to fly across some water, you know. We had to fly in a couple of thunderstorms. One time we had to land a little in a little bumpy, uh, you know, and when you're in a small plane, bumpy is bumpier than when you're in a big plane, okay? And so we have to trust that Ken knows what he's doing, that he has his act together, that he's a, he's a good pilot. We had to believe in him. Well, believing ones are, are trust. This letter was written to those who believe, who are the believing ones in Jesus as the Christ. Their belief, and, and, and that's what we did. Then why was it written? So that's what was written. That's who, to whom it was written. And then why was it written? The end of verse 13. In order that you may know that you have eternal life. That blew me away. I mean, it's been several years ago, but I, I, I always thought, you know, well, I, I believe in Jesus, and I believe that I can know that I have eternal life, but on a scale from 1 to 10, 1 being not so sure and 10 being absolutely positive, how sure are you that if you died tonight, you would spend eternity with God in heaven? That's a Fran the, the evangelism explosion question from James Kennedy. I say, 10? But how can I know this verse? That if, if we meet the tests... None of us is perfect, okay? But if I'm obedient in my heart towards God, if I'm convicted of my sin and want to turn and repent of it, if I'm loving my brothers increasingly and sisters increasingly, and if I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, fully God, fully man, then I can know that I have eternal life. No doubts. I don't have to doubt. Good friends of ours were flying into a Russian airport recently, and as they were flying in to, to land, approaching to land, the plane went vertical, or, or vertical, yeah, just, I mean, automatically just went woof, like that. They were very uncertain as to whether or not they were going to live. Seriously. 
because, as it would so happen, another plane was taking off on the same runway that they were supposed to be landing on, which is not a good thing. And so they were very uncertain, but every believer can be certain. So those of us who are trusting in Jesus, facing these uncertain times of world religions that are hodgepodge stew of spirituality, facing difficult challenges of hostile forces towards Christianity, or personal challenges where Satan wants to lure us away from the solidness of our faith, the relationships, the struggles, the physical, financial, all of that stuff, we can rest assured that we have life. And again, last week, it doesn't begin at the end of this. It's now. In union with Christ, we have his power, his peace, his comfort, his grace, his mercy, his love, his kindness within us. And that's now. Assurance of eternal life is, is precious. Interestingly, John wrote the Gospel of John so that people would believe in Jesus and in believing they would know that they had eternal life. He wrote the Epistle of John, this book, so that those who believed in Jesus would know that they had eternal life. So the first one was written so that they would have eternal life and the second one was written so that they would know that they had eternal life, and the assurance of salvation in Christ is precious to me, should be to us, to steal our faith, to solidify our faith in the midst of all the forces of doubt and despair and discouragement and darkness that are around us. Yes, God is on my side, and I am one of his children, and it's also a precious truth to share with the lost. It was wonderful yesterday going around uh, in the neighborhood that we were in, in, passing out invitations to see people. Now, not every person we saw was wonderful. You know, the guy in his bathrobe and, uh, or in his bath towel around him and, you know, some of this. But it's like, these people came to the door. And it's like, these are lost, many of them lost people. Probably, for whom Christ died. And we want them to know Jesus. And so what, what blessed, what can I share with them? Well, you know, if you follow this Jesus guy, it might work out for you. No! You can have life. And Jesus says, I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. Now, that does not mean the prosperity gospel. That doesn't mean everything's hunky-dory. What it means is that in the midst of the chaos, there is a solid place that I know I'm not shaken. And that I know even though he slay me, yet shall I live, as Job says. Somehow in the midst of our living chaos, confusion, and hardship, I have and I have it forever. Second promise is an assurance of answered prayer. Assurance of answered prayer. Verse 14. And this is the confidence which we have before him. Before him means in his presence, in relationship to him. In relationship with Almighty God, what is the confidence I have before him? That if we ask anything 
according to his will, he hears us. In verse 15, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked of him. Notice he says, this is the confidence. It's not will be the confidence, or it might be the confidence. This is the confidence, present tense. We have this confidence before him. Believers enjoy bold and unhindered access to the throne of God. That's the song we just sang before I got up here to preach. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Boldly, not arrogantly, not piously, but boldly, because we come to our Father. We might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Why don't we pray? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons. A couple of them I'm going to share. Part of it's arrogance. I mean, I, I find myself in that. Well, I'm just, I'm just going to do it. You know, I'm, I, this is something needs to I'm just going to do it. Oh, yeah? Like, you don't need God, right? Because you're so smart or because you're so capable or because you have such abilities. Or because... And then I start thinking, well, not so much. You know? How many times have I said, God, I just can't do this. And then I go, duh. That's kind of the point. You can't do it. We can't do it. So our arrogance. Then the other part of it is unbelief. We're just really not sure that God's really going to be able to handle what we're, what we're laying out there for him, you know. But he says there's a condition. Notice the condition here, which is interesting because some people are going to go to this verse just like they go to John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, and a lot of other places. And Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened to you. For whoever asks, receive. Whoever seeks, uh, finds. And whoever knocks, God opens the door. You know, they, they think, well, hey, Lord, you know, I would really like a BMW, you know, uh, 325. Uh, you know, I've seen these Buick commercials. Which one would you pick? Yeah, I don't know. You know, some guy, little, he has all these little people sitting on his head and on his shoulders, you know, and they, oh, you take this one, you take that one, you take this one. Well, God, I would like that. So we, we believe that God is some sort of a cosmic genie, that if we put in the prayer, pull the lever, and then he spits out the answer. The condition here is if we ask according to his will. We ask according to his will. It, is, it should be, it's not a name it, claim it thing. You can go to Matthew chapter 21, verse 22, that's the, and, and Matthew chapter 7. Ask and it shall be given you, Matthew 22, and all things you ask in prayer, believing you shall receive them. Well, I believe that I'm going to get that BMW, you say. Eh, no, we'll take it in context of all that God teaches about prayer. And here, the condition is, if you ask according to my will, I give it to you. Knowing that God hears and he answers. You know, it's not like me ignoring Marla when she's asking me to go do something during March Madness or something like that. No, God does hear. He hears and he answers. Prayer is alignment of our will with his. When our prayer is in alignment with his will, then when we ask, he will answer. 
and we'll get the requests that we ask for him constantly. See, here's how it plays out, at least in my mind. We either, our will is aligned with him, so when we ask, we ask what he would want us to ask, or our will is aligned with him so that when we ask, we ask that he gives us what is according to his will. As Jesus did. Remember when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. So that whenever I pray, if I'm praying consistently with God's will, then whatever I ask he gives, if I pray consistently that his will be done, both together, then no matter what I pray, I get the answer that God wants. Several months ago, Marl and I were on vacation, and we landed uh, in a foreign country, got off the plane, were we were taking the transportation to the place we were staying. And Marla said to me, Steve, I don't have my computer. I said, what? She says, yeah, I must have left it on the plane. We were in a foreign country that's not known for their honesty, generally speaking, which probably would include most foreign countries. It would include the United States of America, okay? So it doesn't matter. Even if it was in Detroit and you leave your computer on the airplane, chances of you seeing that computer again are between slim and none, okay? So Marla, more faithful than I would be, said, you know what, Steve? I'm just going to trust God with this. I said, okay, we're going to trust God. We're going to pray. She was trusting God more than I was, just to be honest here. Full confession. And she says, I'm not going to let this ruin my vacation. I'm just going to trust God. If he wants us to have that computer back, it's got all, our, all my work stuff on it. It's got pictures, everything, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking, oh, you know. Okay, so we just trusted God. And throughout the whole week, honestly, this was at the beginning of the vacation. You know, what a way to ruin your vacation. So throughout the whole week, we didn't really hardly talk about it. We just said, okay, we're just going to trust God with the whole thing. So we went to the airport to leave, and I got to the ticket counter, you know, and I said, well, by the way, you know, we had made phone calls or whatever, and of course, you know, the airline, they'll put the search out right away, you know, and you'll be notified when they find something. Yeah, right. So we, uh, we just, uh, you know, like, it's their, their thing, and this is a great emergency. I'm not buying that. But anyhow, we got to the ticket counter, and I said, you know, when we were on our flight here, and I gave her the flight information, I said, my wife left her computer on the plane would you know would you happen to find it well what what was you know can you describe it and I told her what it was and it was in this case and blah 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 they had it they had the computer they brought the computer out and they gave it to my wife and she still has it now we prayed a simple you know you say well pray about anything yeah sure now, was that according to God's will? We prayed according to God's will because we prayed, God, it would be our will that you find and give us back the computer, but whatever you will, let that be done. Now, he answered the way we wanted to, but if he hadn't answered and we hadn't found the computer, we still would have prayed, we still, he still would have heard, and he still would have answered according to his will. And this is the blessed hope that we have as believers. That we can pray according to his will and he hears us. 
So I ask you, and I ask myself throughout this week, what are you praying for? How do we align our will with God's will? You know, what, what are we praying for? East Drake Hunt? I'm praying for the East Drake Hunt. What? That, you know, yeah, pray for good weather. If God wants us to have, but God's will be done. Yesterday, I'm thinking, well, this is a really cruddy day to go out and try to pass out invitations. Who wants to do that? I'm thinking, whoever said following Jesus was easy. You know, you might have to get muddy. You might have to get wet. You might have to, you know, endure some stuff. I don't have to walk around dusty roads in Palestine. Anyhow, I'm thinking, well, let's pray for God's harvest of souls. Does God want people to come to know Jesus? Yes. So I think that's according to his will. Will anybody come to know Jesus because of the Easter egg hunt? Your will be done. All he asks us to do is sow the seeds. Am I praying for my own spiritual growth? Am I praying for the, the spiritual development of my children and my future grandchildren? Should God bless us with them? Yes. Am I praying for spiritual revival, renewal in Urbandale in the Des Moines area? Yes. Are we praying for each other in our times of need and struggle? And you know what some of those are. I hope so. Praying God's will be done. We need decisions. Some of you need a job. Some of you need a different job or want a different job. And maybe you don't know if that's God's will. Well, hey, his will be done. And pray that God would do it. Here's the deal. He gives not only this encouragement to pray, but then he follows it with an explanation in verse 16, which is a little bit kind of like, why is this in here when I read it? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. Well, he's given an illustration of what he's just said. If we pray... God hears and answers if we pray according to his will. Well, it's God's will that believers caught in sin would turn from their sin and experience life. You read James chapter 5, verse 15. Uh, and pr the prayer offered in faith will restore the one. So that's what he asks us to pray. If people are in sin, and notice it's the other-centeredness mostly here. It's intercession, not, uh, not necessarily supplication. It's not necessarily asking for me. It's asking for, for other people. And then he says there's a, there is a sin unto death and there's a sin not unto death. Well, the sin not unto death, you say, he says, pray. But then the sin unto death, that's where it gets a little sticky. You know, hmm, what do we do with that? Well, that's what I was wondering too. So uh, I think what we can do with that is to say there was a sin unto death. But we don't know what it was because John didn't tell us. And he says, probably not so much pray for that, but he didn't say you can't pray for that. And I think he didn't say you can't pray for that because you don't know people's spiritual condition. This would be someone who's maybe, I don't know, they probably knew what it was. I don't know. There's a couple of possibilities. One, it could be an, a believer who is sinning to such a degree that God would take their life. Now, we have examples of that in the Bible. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to God, lied to the apostles, said, well, yeah, we sold, you know, this is all that it, that's all there is. Uh, not so much. You know, uh, then 
The wife comes in, same thing. Then we have in Acts chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there, there were some who were, die, who were dead because they were making a mockery of the Lord's table. So we have that example, but there's also another possibility, which is the one I tend to lean towards, and that is the sin unto death would be an unbeliever who is entrenched in their unbelief such, to such a degree that they're, they're irredeemable. They have rejected Jesus and the hardness of their heart is such. And this would be similar if you looked at Mark chapter, or is it Luke? Mark chapter 3 uh, and Matthew 12, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So that they would have hardened themselves so much against God that they, they couldn't be redeemed. But Calvin gives us some good advice here. He says, we ought not rashly to conclude that anyone has brought on himself the judgment of eternal death. So if it's a believer, the believer could be sinning to the point that God would take their physical life, but not their spiritual life. The unbeliever has sinned to such a degree that God will take them eternally. That's the possibilities. The point is still that God wants us to pray, and then he qualifies it in verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin. So here's the deal. All unrighteousness is sin. So pray that God would turn us from our sin. All sin needs to be repented of, confessed, and turned from. And that's what we ought to be praying for each other. That we would return and, and turn from our sin. I haven't been in every school, but I've had children in a number of different school districts. It seems to me that in every school whether it's in the drama program or the music program or the athletic program, there are certain students who are, I'll call them, untouchable. It doesn't really matter their ability. It doesn't really matter their attitude. They're going to play. They're going to perform. They're going to be up front simply because there are politics involved. They play, they perform with confidence because they know they won't be taken out. doesn't matter. If you're here this morning and you're trusting in Jesus Christ and his death alone and that alone as the payment for your sin, guess what? You're on God's team and you are untouchable. You have the promise of assurance of salvation. You have the promise of assurance of answered prayer that God gives us to steal us, to strengthen us, to support us in a life that's chaotic, in a life that's contrary to our Christian faith. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, then that's the offer that I would make to you that I make often have made in my study. Has anybody ever taken the Bible and shown you how you can know for sure that you have eternal life? Because these verses tell us you can know that you have eternal life. And it's life in his son. You simply repent, turn from your sin, knowing that your sin condemns you to an eternity apart from God and that you need to be rescued and delivered so that you can have a life of purpose, a life of meaning, a life that is satisfying and full that God offered. And then you just cry out to God and say, Lord, I need it. I'm sorry. Forgive me of my sins. I trust Jesus and I accept him as my Savior. We can play with confidence. See, as we, as we turn on this Palm Sunday to uh, communion, what's interesting to me is that we rest assured, those who know Jesus, we rest assured, what we rest assured in today was anticipated and expected and desired by the people who were crying out to Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna, as he rode the donkey into Jerusalem that day, more than 2,000 years ago. Because what does Hosanna mean? 
save now. That's what it means. It means save now, which is exactly what Jesus was writing into Jerusalem to do. Not in the way they wanted him to, but he was writing into Jerusalem to save them, to provide the offer of salvation, the possibility of salvation through his death on the cross as the payment for our sins and the only payment that we must trust and put our faith in. And so as we celebrate communion, as we take these elements, we're proclaiming that he provided salvation, the bread, represents his body, which is broken. And the blood is represented by the cup. And so that communion becomes a celebration of believers, a celebration of our assurance of salvation, assurance of our answered prayer, assurance that there was salvation provided for us through Hosanna, the Savior who brought salvation. Now, it's an invitation to anyone who doesn't know Jesus that there's a life, eternal life, that's available to you and me We simply cry out and accept what God has done. So this is open to everyone who's trusting in Jesus. And I invite you to come and partake of it as God leads you during the time that our praise team is singing. Let's pray. Father, give us grace. Those who don't know you, to trust you fully. Those of us who do know you, to rejoice in the salvation you provided for us through your Son. We remember right now as we take up these elements and as we remember his death to provide salvation and assurance of answered prayer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.